come now this, this morning to the last individual who's spoken about in detail, and that's that's Rahab. Um, the, the next time we're in Hebrews, I'm not sure if that'll be next week or the week after, but the next time we're in Hebrews, the uh, we'll bring the chapter to a close with the summaries that are made about faith and the, the reasons that are given there, and they're precious and they're important. So this morning we're going to, I want to begin in Joshua chapter 2. Last week we looked at the, the, the fall of Jericho, and the story of Rahab is, is, is intimately tied with that story. And so some of this is going to be familiar. We're going to cover a little bit of the same ground, but we're going to focus primarily on her. So beginning in, in Joshua chapter 2, we're going to read most of the chapter and then jump to Hebrews and see what it says there. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the, women had taken the two, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had lain, laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal, de- deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours if you do not tell this business of, your, of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. And gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. 
and we shall be free. But if anyone who is with you is in the house, if anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So the, the picture there is, is very clean, or it's very pure, very clearly presented. As the people ha- have uh, gathered at the Jordan River, they're ready to cross the Jordan. They're ready to invade the promised land that the Lord has given them. Joshua sends the spies. The spies go to this woman's house, and we, we see the interaction there. Hebrews 11 takes her it just deals with her in verse 31 and it makes this statement about her and her faith the writer of hebrews says by faith rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace the book of hebrews was written to jewish christians who were wavering in their faith They were wondering if they should remain part of the way, part of the the gospel, part of the teaching about Christ, or return to the temple. And we've talked before about the the various reasons that they would have done that, social pressure and peer pressure and the fact that, that this gathering of Christians involved a lot of Gentiles and it didn't involve sacrifices and it was not based at the temple and it, it, it was a very plain, humble, unimpressive thing compared to the rites and the rituals of the temple. The writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show that Jesus Christ is superior to anything else that people do, including the Old Testament law and the Old Testament priesthood and system of doing things. Chapter 11 is a series of, of case studies of the people of God as they lived their lives in him, as they trusted him. And for the most part, these people really are heroes to the Jewish people. You have those who are of the, the, the line of faith. You have Abel, you have Enoch, you have Noah, Abraham, Sarah, um, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the, the people of Israel themselves. And it seems to even grow in significance that you begin with Abel, you go to Enoch, and then you've got Noah. And Noah, of course, is the reason we're all here, is because God found Noah to be favorable, or rather Noah found favor with God. The people of Israel exist because God called Abraham. Abraham believed, Sarah believed, their children were born. And it builds up to this this point of intensity in verse 30 with the Israelites coming into the land and the walls of Jericho falling, God had promised, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to fight for you. And he demonstrates that really on day one. As they enter the land, he's going to do that. And then the last specific person mentioned is uh, is really questionable from a Jewish mindset. It's a woman. Now, Sarah was mentioned, but Sarah was mentioned really in connection with Abraham. Rahab is mentioned not in connection with another man. It's by faith Rahab. She's not Jewish. 
She's not descended from Israel. She's a Gentile. She isn't even partly connected like uh, the descendants of Lot or the descendants of, of Esau. She's just purely a Canaanite. And then she's a prostitute. The, the New American Standard and other translations use the word harlot because it's an older word and it, and it doesn't grate morally maybe quite as much. She's a prostitute. So the writer of Hebrews says to himself, I need to give these people I'm urging to stay faithful to Jesus a series of case studies in people who trusted God so that they'll be encouraged. And I'll end with the, the, I'll end with the Gentile prostitute. That'll really give them that encouragement to stay faithful. It's an odd thing. It's an odd thing. And what we see with Rahab's faith is the power of God to save and the faithfulness of God to save absolutely anyone at all. Rahab, before the spies had shown up in the land, Rahab has some knowledge that's, that's shared with everybody in the region. Uh, when she goes to speak to the spies, she says, we know that you're coming. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that, that your God parted the Red Sea when you left Egypt. Everybody knows that. Everybody in the land of Canaan has heard this story. doesn't mean everybody necessarily believes it, but everybody knows the story. Everybody knows what you did to the kings of the Amorites. The, the, the land of the Amorites was just east over the Jordan River and south down the side of the Dead Sea a little bit. It, it was fairly close, unlike Egypt. Everybody knows what you did to those kings. You killed those kings, and then you settled in that land. You basically just invaded that land. Everybody knows that you're poised just on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and you're locked and loaded at this land. And everybody in Jericho knows that we're the first city you're going to come to. And everybody's terrified. Everybody knows that we are in desperate trouble. But there's some things that she knows that nobody else knows. The key thing that she knows is what we are told in Joshua 2.11. And that's when she says to the spies, Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and earth beneath. She knew this and believed it before the spies ever showed up. How on earth, when there is no scripture, when there is no people of God aside from the people of the family of Israel who have been wandering in the wilderness and then living in the land of the Amorites, how, how on earth, without any testimony at all, does a Canaanite prostitute come to the understanding that Yahweh... The God of Israel is not just a local deity, but the God of everything. God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is only one answer, and that is the Spirit of God gave her that understanding. The Spirit of God gave her that faith. The Spirit of God opened her heart to understand that. Now, at this point, when the spies show up, what she knows is that judgment is coming. Her confession about who Yahweh is 
is, is not just a confession that God is on your side for geopolitical affairs. It's a confession that judgment is coming against the people of Canaan because of their sin. For everybody else in Canaan and everybody else in Jericho, Israel was a, a political entity that they had to face. And there was going to be a war, and there were so many Israelites coming that they might just lose that battle or lose that war. But for Rahab, the reason she's here in Hebrews 11 isn't because of a territorial dispute. The reason that she's here in Hebrews 11 is salvation. Rahab knew that what God was doing through his people against Canaan was bringing judgment. That's not something that she picked up by watching the news or by talking to people in Jericho. That's something that the Spirit of God had pressed upon her mind and pressed upon her heart. She wanted protection. She wanted a defense. But how do you defend yourself against that? How do you defend yourself against more than a million Israelites, hundreds of thousands of of armed men, when the God of heaven above and earth beneath is on their side, when he parts rivers and seas, when he gives them victory over kings? How do you defend yourself? And... We don't know, we're not told, but I think that there might have been nights when she laid sleepless, wondering, what can I do? What hope is there? And then these two Jewish men come to her home, these two Israelite men come to her home. And she has her opportunity. And she asks them for mercy. She asks them for mercy. And they promise her mercy. These men are good evangelists because they promise her mercy, but they can't give it to her. It's not in their control. So they promise her mercy and they give her a a cord made of scarlet thread to hang in the window. The word translated cord in most most, uh, translations comes from a Hebrew word, the root word of which means hope or expectation or anticipation. So in a sense, what they say to her when she says, show me mercy, show my family mercy, they take a scarlet cord and they give it to her and they say, make this your hope. I think for these two men, They had to be thinking of the Passover in Egypt when the lamb was killed and the the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts and the judgment of God passed over them and they handed her a scarlet cord. Not blood and not to paint on the, the doorway but to tie to the window but that line of scarlet is is just strongly reminiscent of the Passover in Egypt. What will God do for those who call upon him? He'll save them. Only if they meet certain legalistic requirements? No, here's a a Canaanite prostitute who knows nothing except judgment is coming and she wants deliverance. And when she asks for it, they promise her deliverance, but it's a deliverance God is going to have to give her. And she believes. 
she believes this. We know that she believes it because she ties that scarlet cord in the window. And interestingly enough, what the men say to her is, uh, when we come into the land, you must tie this scarlet cord in the window. She doesn't wait. As soon as they're gone, she ties it there. And from that moment, she believes in Yahweh. And she believes that when the judgment comes, she will be spared. She and all who are in her home. So let's talk about her faith. Five points about her faith. First of all, her faith is saving faith. Now that seems to be obvious. She's saved because of her faith. But I'll remind you again, it's not just that Rahab didn't die when the other Jerichoites died. It's that Rahab received saving faith from God so that she would not be condemned in the day of judgment. There was nothing she could do for herself, but she could plead for mercy from the only one who could give mercy, which is Yahweh himself. She tried with the spies, you save me. And they said, we can't cling to this. Well, that's exactly what we do in evangelism is we offer people Christ crucified and raised and we say, cling to this, hope in this, hope in who Jesus Christ is. Jesus says in Matthew 26 when he's celebrating communion with his men, or the, the, the Lord's Supper rather, he says that his blood is the, the blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Rahab was one of those many. She didn't know it. The spies clearly were looking back 40 years to Passover. There's no way they could be looking forward 1,400 years to Calvary. But spiritually, that's what's taking place. Second, Rahab's faith is solitary faith. There was at least a time for her when no one else in Jericho believed what she believed. When if she had gone to anybody, they would have told her that she was crazy. That the, the God of Israel was not going to save her because she was the enemy. He was going to fight for his people and only for his people. She wasn't born to believe in Yahweh. She was born to believe in and worship many gods. But the Spirit of God gave her the conviction that Yahweh alone is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. No one else shared that conviction, and she held it even though she was the only one. She didn't give up on that. It was the Lord's purpose to save this woman, and he used her life to magnify his grace and his glory. And the Lord strengthened her in spite of her isolation. Third, her faith was stable faith. I want you to think about how long Rahab had to wait. She asked the spies for deliverance. They didn't take her with them. They could have taken her with them out the window. They they really could have and taken her right back to Israel, but they didn't. They leave her in her home, clinging to that scarlet cord. And she waits And she believes. The spies spent three days in the hills, as she suggested that they do, and and she waited, and she believed. They went back across the Jordan. They they reported to Joshua, 
the people of Israel crossed the Jordan on dry land. The Lord opened the Jordan up, and she waits, and she believes. Once they'd entered into the promised land, this massive group of people stops for a week or ten days. Nobody really knows why. They've been circumcised, and they have to take time to heal. She doesn't know that. She just continues to wait, and she believes. Israel finally marches, and they approach Jericho. I'm sure that there is a point where she's standing in the window of her house, and she's looking out, and if she's not looking east toward the the people, at some point they, they begin moving around and walking around. Every time they pass those seven days and 13 trips around, every time they pass, she's, she's ready. Anytime they want to come get her, she's just kind of ready. But she, she waits and she believes. And her faith doesn't bounce around. She doesn't say, I believe. No, I don't believe. Yeah, I believe. No, I don't believe. It's not something that she puts on and off. It's something that remains steady for her. They finally circle the seventh time and everybody stops and all the people, I think, perhaps turn toward the city walls and she sees that and they all take a deep breath and they shout out a great shout. And then put yourself in in Rahab's position and she feels the earth shaking and the sound and the dust of the city walls collapsing and her house stands and she waits And she believes. She sees the Israelite soldiers go rushing into the city and she hears the sounds of warfare and she hears the sounds of killing and she waits and she believes. And finally, Joshua says, go get her. Go get her. And they come for her. There's never a point when Rahab goes running to them She waits, and she believes. And I'm not sure how much significance this has, but for me it has significance. The name Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua, and Yeshua in Greek is Jesus. So there's a picture of the Lord Jesus and his people, and his people waiting and clinging to his cross, clinging to his blood, and waiting and believing. And the Lord saying in his time, it's time. Go save this one. Go save that one. Let's bring this one home now. Let's bring this one in. She persevered in her faith. Fourth, her faith was a sympathetic faith. She didn't just look for her own deliverance. When she asked, she asked that her parents and her brothers and sisters would be saved as well. And when the promise was given, it was given for them too. They could take refuge behind the same cord. Now it's important, the spies said, we're not going to save them just because we save you. If they're not in your home, that is if they're not taking refuge behind that scarlet cord, they won't be saved. There's a reminder here for me of the Philippian jailer who says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. What they didn't mean was, if you will believe on the basis of your faith, God will cause your whole household to be saved. What was meant was, 
The promise is for you and the promise is for your household as well. Your household, the, the men and the women and the children in your home can be saved on the very same basis that you're saved by coming to Jesus Christ through his cross, by clinging to that scarlet cord, by trusting in him. Rahab longs for her family to be spared, so she asks. When the spies leave, what does she do? She evangelizes them. She goes to them with good news. Israel Israel is on its way. Our city is going to fall. Judgment is going to come. They're going to destroy us. But I have a promise that if I'm in my home and I'm taking refuge behind this scarlet cord, that they'll save me. And if you will come and take refuge behind that same cord, they will save you. It wasn't... a tremendously hard sell for her parents because everybody knew Israel was there. And we're not told at what point they went into her home. It might have been when the Israelites began circling. It's harder for us as we seek to persuade people. It's natural within our hearts that we want those that we love to know the Savior. She had a sympathetic faith And then finally, she had a sanctifying faith. When the city walls fell and Joshua sent the men, they brought them out. They brought Rahab and her father and her brothers and her mother and all with them. They brought them out. And it says they they put them out of the camp, set, set them outside the camp of Israel. They could be there because the Lord had spared them, but they weren't Jews, so they couldn't be in the camp of Israel. There was a line of distinction that had to be there. What happens then? Well, Rahab didn't just disappear into another Canaanite city to take up her old trade. We're not told in Joshua, but we're told elsewhere in Scripture that Rahab becomes the wife of a man named Salmon. Salmon is uh, from the tribe of Judah. And the time comes when they bring a son into the world, and they name that son Boaz. Boaz grows up, and he meets a woman named Ruth. And Ruth reminds him, perhaps, of his mother, because Ruth isn't Hebrew. Ruth is a Moabitess. And Boaz has pity on her and her poverty and her situation, but Boaz falls in love with her too. And he takes her as wife, and Boaz and Ruth bring a son into the world, and they name him Obed. Obed Obed grows up. We don't know his full story, but he grows up, gets married. They bring a son into the world. They name their son Jesse. Jesse grows up, he gets married, they bring a number of sons into the world, the youngest of whom is named David. And so the Lord takes Rahab the harlot and weaves her into the genealogy, the ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rahab is sanctified because of her faith. It doesn't mean that she cleaned herself up. It means that because God took her as his his own, that he preserved her, that he changed her, that he cleansed her and gave her his name. Rahab is mentioned in five passages of Scripture, Joshua 2, Joshua 6, Matthew 1, Hebrews 11, and James 2. In both chapters in Joshua and in Hebrews 11, as we see, and in James 2, she's called Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. All of those deal with her 
life at the moment of her conversion, her life at the moment that she believed. The one place where she's not called Rahab the prostitute is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, where it's not her moment of conversion, but her identity in the people of God. And now she's no longer Rahab the prostitute. Now she's Rahab the great-grandmother many times over of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she has a new identity. As we bring this home, this has been fairly straightforward, so I'll just finish tapping these in for you. First of all, genuine faith saves. Genuine faith saves. Every person in Christ understands the holiness of God and the judgment that's coming. We feel the weight of our own sin and the the burden. We know that we're powerless to save ourselves. We know that he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place so that we could take refuge in his cross and take refuge in his blood in that scarlet cord, that that could be our hope. And we hide behind that cross. We trust that the Lord is going to do the, the work of conforming us to the image of Christ. It's important that we understand that faith and the gospel aren't the doorway into another life, into eternal life. Faith and the gospel are a hallway. They're a corridor. They're a road that take us from whatever point we are when we come to Christ to the fullness of what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. People occasionally here and occasionally at our church in Creighton wonder why I emphasize the gospel so much. And it's because the gospel is not just for the wicked. The gospel is how we are conformed to the image of Christ. The moment that we forget that we were taken out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God and clothed with Christ is the moment that we are no longer able to grow. We can't forget what the Lord has done for us. The second, genuine faith is stable. It doesn't mean that genuine faith never wonders. It means, doesn't mean it never wavers. It means that it doesn't come and go. It remains there. There are times in, uh, in, in 41 years for me this year of being in Christ, there, there have been times when I just thought, boy, it would be easier to just yield. It'd be easier just to go with the crowd. And in my flesh, that's what would happen. But the faith that is given to us is stable faith. It remains. And even though we've got all of this pressure and all of this, this, uh, this uh, movement within us to try and say, let's find a, a different way, Faith is this cord that ties us through and it continues to to pull us through. When I was a kid, uh, my my dad had a boat and we we water skied. And and before he got the boat, uh, we were at some mountain lake and they decided they were going to teach me how to water ski on double skis. And they showed me how to hold the rope and they showed me how to put the skis on and they showed me how to stand on the skis and they showed me how to get there with the rope between the skis and they showed me how to try and balance in the water. What they didn't tell me was let go if you fall. And so I fell. I never even got up. It just jerked me out of the skis. But doggone, I'm not letting go of the rope. And they're yelling. I can hear them yelling, let go of the rope, let go of the rope. It's like, stop the boat. You want me to stop? 
faith hangs on. There are times that faith says, this is insane. There is no way I can get up on my feet. But faith hangs on in the confidence that the Lord is going to bring us through. Third, genuine faith is sympathetic. Genuine faith is sympathetic. We, we want our families and loved ones to be saved. It's, it's much harder in our time to convince people that judgment is coming. The world knows that. The world absolutely knows that. The California legislature this week passed a resolution. A resolution means it's not binding, it's just the opinion of the legislature. They passed a resolution saying that every church and religious group in California should embrace LGBT mentality and ideology, even if it violates their faith. One of the primary reasons that they give is because of the mental suffering that LGBT people experience. It's our fault. It's our fault that they suffer. It's our fault that they kill themselves. See, within them is the knowledge that what they're doing is worthy of judgment. And they're trying to find a way to make that go away. And they decide that those of us who are saying judgment is coming, we're the reason that they feel bad. I can't make anybody feel bad. I've tried for for 25 years as a preacher to preach people into the kingdom of God. I've never been able to do it. It's a work of God. If I could do anything and influence anybody to the point where they would change their lives on the basis, I would have people saved around me all the time. It doesn't work that way. The people of this world know that judgment is coming. Our job isn't to persuade them that judgment is coming, although we must warn them that it's coming. Our job to those who say, judgment is coming, I don't know what to do. Our job is to say, cling to the cross. Here is a scarlet cord in the gospel. Cling to it. Trust it. Make it your hope. That's hard to do. That's why the first work of evangelism and the last work of evangelism is prayer. It's engaging with the Lord Jesus Christ as he is the Savior, as he is building his kingdom, as we bring people to him that he already knows and saying, please, Lord, have mercy on them, call them, fill them with life, grant them an awareness of their sin, grant them an awareness of the hope of the gospel. And finally, genuine faith sanctifies Four times Rahab is called Rahab the harlot. Only when it's speaking of her life at the moment of her salvation. Matthew speaks of her life in the kingdom. Her life as a child of God. What would your name be if there was an adjective added to it? What would my name be if it was Greg the fill in the blank? What would your name be if there was an adjective to it? I don't want to think of what mine would be. I wouldn't have just one. In Christ, there are no adjectives. In Christ, our sinful identity is exchanged for his righteousness. Whatever the adjective was and the adjectives were of my life, he took upon himself at Calvary. Jesus in scripture is called Jesus Christ the righteous as we have put on Christ by grace through faith, now I can say without pride because it's not my achievement, but as a gift, I am Greg the righteous. And I stand dressed in Christ. 
in his righteousness alone. By grace through faith we put on Christ. And what God the Father sees when he looks at us now is his son. That's why we can come to him boldly. That's why we can appeal to him for salvation and for grace to help in time of need. So the scarlet cord of the gospel is available to everyone who will call on the name of the Lord in faith. Our job is to serve as the spies. And to look for those people, as Linda shared earlier, that this this woman that she began to have a conversation with now is intrigued and now wants to hear more. And our prayer, our hope is that that curiosity is coming from the Lord and that as Linda meets with her, Linda will be able to say, here's a scarlet cord. Here's the blood of Jesus Christ. Take refuge in it. We can all do that. We can all take that message. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your grace given to us and your kindness to us. Lord, we ask that you would remind us this week of this beautiful scarlet cord of the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us, that transforms us. Thank you for the gift of faith. And Lord, as as we make our appeal to those we know and love, as we pray to you for them, would you guide our prayers? Would you give us clarity? Would you give us compassion for them? Would you help us to speak clearly and simply? And would you draw them to yourself? And for the sake of your name, for the sake of your grace and your glory, would you save? Bring your elect home. We thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.